Hey, good morning, everybody. Again, beautiful day today. Another hot one from like last Sunday. Glad we can be together in this cool place. Hey, uh, later today, in fact, maybe just in a few minutes, we're going to be welcoming back our uh, mission team that went to uh, Northern Ireland. They've been in Northern Ireland this past week. They, from what I hear, they had a great experience working with our mission partners there, the Samuels doing evangelism and reconciliation ministry between Roman Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland uh, with YWAM, which is called Youth with a Mission. I love the fact that we're a sending church, that we don't just give money to our mission partners globally or locally, but we try to connect personally uh, and get people involved from our church, involved in these ministries in appropriate ways. You know, our high school students just returned from Mexico. In February, I'll be uh, leading another trip to visit the Amistad Orphanage in Bolivia, and I'd love to have some new faces come along with us on that trip. Next summer, we're hoping to do a family mission trip somewhere closer to here, possibly in uh, West Virginia, something a little bit more manageable. But I love the fact that we're ascending church. And as I've thought back on the many different mission trips that I've taken, I feel so grateful that I've been able to see firsthand the way God is at work through the people, through his people in all kinds of diverse and cultures and circumstances, whether it was India in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh where we were with the ministry uh, to the untouchables or in Africa, Malawi, Rwanda, uh, witnessed the vibrant faith of the people there. Or in the Middle East, a couple of years ago, I was in Jordan and Lebanon and got to see their faith a little bit more clandestine, yet in many ways even so bold in the face of violent opposition. Or Bolivia, or Mexico, so different in culture and language, but all exactly the same in their love for Jesus Christ. That really moves my heart, to know that all these people are my brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of their accent or their skin pigmentation, the way that they dress, there is a oneness in Christ that is beautiful, a love for Christ that's transcendent. As Christians, we can celebrate diversity, and that's a great thing. But the better thing, the more important thing, the truly liberating thing is to celebrate our unity around Jesus Christ, celebrate that core, that center, that essence of our faith, who is Jesus. Celebrate our unity in him because he's the one who makes us one. And you know what lies right underneath that unity that we have in Christ, what in a way supports that kind of unity, allows it to happen? It is a shared devotion to the Bible as the inspired Word of God, a shared confidence in the power of Scripture to transform a person's life, a shared commitment to the Bible as God's authority in all matters of life and faith. Because the Bible transcends all cultures and races and languages and nations, all times, all places, it is the same Jesus in all the corners of the world, but we know this Jesus through a shared commitment to his word in Scripture. That's what connects us as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where we are or what we look like. Christ is the one who makes us one, but we know him through our shared commitment to Scripture. So keep that in the back of your mind now as I read from the book of Joshua, our passage for today. Joshua chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Let's hear God's word today. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country. 
to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. <coughs> Excuse me. And then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Amen. Thanks be to God's word. What do you do after you've been publicly humiliated? I don't mean something like dropping your tray in the cafeteria. Sure, you feel embarrassed for a moment because everybody's looking at you, but then you kind of just pick up your jello off the floor and you move on, right? Accidents happen. Most people are sympathetic. It's not going to ruin you or define your life. What I'm talking about is more of a big dog humiliation where the spotlight is on you and it is personal. Your opinion has been publicly rejected, your leadership undermined, your character called into question. <clears throat> you got the short end of the stick and everybody knows it. You lost the power struggle and you were shown the door, here's your hat, what's your hurry? Just move on? Well, how do you have a new beginning when you had such a bad ending? I've heard it said that everybody should be fired from at least one job in your lifetime. Why? Because it's in those moments that your true character is tested. Your true self comes out. Do you complain? Do you carry a grudge? Do you badmouth those who hurt you? Do you nurse that anger until it poisons every conversation, every relationship? That can happen to a lot of people. They, they stumble and then they never get over it. They never move beyond it. They get stuck at that point of feeling like a failure. I got unexpectedly fired once in my ministry career, and it was quite a blow. So I'm not wishing that on anybody. But it is at those moments that you discover who you really are and what are you really made of. And that brings us to Joshua. Do you know much about Joshua? A few weeks ago, he was kind of a background character when I told the story of Rahab. But to understand Joshua, we actually have to go back 40 years earlier from the past which we read today to when the people of Israel basically stood on the exact same pile of dirt, looking over the Jordan River into the land God had promised them. God brought them out of Egypt right to the river's edge. The Israelites were ready to go. Moses, their leader, sent two spies to scout out the land, and, or, or more than that, spent a number of spies to scout out the land, and two of them were young Joshua and Caleb. But the group of spies came back with a split decision. In Numbers 13, we're told that the majority of the spies said the land was everything it was supposed to be. It was rich, it was abundant, had great schools, low taxes, all the rest. It was a beautiful place. The only problem is that there were already people living there. And they were a mean-looking bunch, the Canaanites. They were powerful. Their cities were fortified. And the spies said, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. The majority report was negative. We can't do it. The enemy's too tough. The cost is too high. So the people of Israel just start wailing and moaning over this news. And Joshua and Caleb, well, they offer the minority report. Joshua and Caleb saw the exact same circumstances, but their view was positive. Numbers 14 says, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. 
if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he will give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord, Joshua said. And do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. And then this is how the passage ends. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Not only was Joshua's opinion rejected, they were ready to kill him. They were ready to publicly execute him for suggesting that they should actually obey God and go into the land. The people refused to go forward. They didn't trust God, they didn't trust Caleb, and they sure didn't trust Joshua. They were ready to stone him to death. It was more than just a slap in the face. They were going to kill him for believing God's promises. Imagine Joseph and his frustration. I mean, he was an energetic, full of faith, action-oriented kind of guy, willing to take risks. And the people practically trample him running in the opposite direction. And now he's got to go back with them into the desert for 40 more years? He was publicly humiliated. His opinion discarded like the ravings of a madman. His reputation trashed as a leader. I mean, his career really seemed like it was over. I mean, Joshua could have been bitter, could have held a grudge. No one would have blamed him if he'd just thrown in the towel and said, that's it, I'm done with Israel. But he didn't. He didn't get bitter. He got better. He didn't get bitter. He got better. He hung in there. He took his licks. He nursed his wounds and continued to serve God by serving this very difficult group of people. And now, years later, that strength of character brought him to a new beginning as the leader of the whole nation. God honored his faith by allowing him to be the one who would now accomplish what he and Caleb had first set out to do so many years before. He would lead the people into the promised land. Where does that kind of character come from? The kind of character that can hang in there for a long haul in difficult and sometimes unrewarding circumstances that can keep on believing in God and God's promises when the timetable gets all messed up. Here in Joshua 1, we get a summary statement of Joshua's character. There's nothing new in what God says to him. It's really just a reminder of all that had shaped Joshua's character because it had been already tested many times before. Verse 7 and 8. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. You see, long before Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, he fought an interior battle, an inner battle, to decide what would be the foundational principles of his life. Joshua's strength was always in God's word. He bet his life on one thing, that God's word could be trusted. A flourishing life with the Lord always requires this deep inner reservoir of being able to trust in God's word, of loving God's word. That's the basis for everything else. The law God was referring to is what we now have as the first five books of the Bible that we call the books of Moses or the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The writings of Moses, they were still being codified at this time. But that's all Joshua had. The rest of the Bible hadn't happened yet. But it was enough because it revealed God's character and nature, God's principles for living, God's purposes for his people. And as long as Joshua built his life and his leadership on the foundation of God's word, God promised that his life would be prosperous. His faith 
would flourish. That's how Joshua found the courage to bounce back from disappointments. It was through his commitment to God's word. That's how Joshua, who, who must have felt like a misfit within Israel after they rejected him, imagine day two of going back into the, to the, to the camps and, oh, there goes Joshua, you know, poor guy. You know, imagine what that would have been like, the humiliation. But that's how he could turn a setback into a comeback. Joshua centered his life on God's word, and God did not disappoint. If Joshua were here with us today, he would be first in line to affirm the words that Jesus gave us in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But if everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man, built his house on sand, the rains came down, streams rose, winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Long before Jesus ever spoke those words, Joshua was living it. God's word was the foundation of his life. That's how he found courage in the face of hardship, perseverance in times of disappointment, comfort in the midst of struggle. He studied it, he chewed on it, he wrestled with it, and most importantly, he lived it. That's how the Word of God, that's what it did to turn Joshua's life around. What a change from being a misfit, a humiliated reject, into one of the most faithful leaders of all the Bible. And you know what? That's what God's Word continues to do today. What God's Word will do in your life and mind if we invest ourselves in it like Joshua did. The Apostle Paul put it this way, 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching and training, rebuking, uh, correcting in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God breathed. Uh, other translations say inspired. You know, you can have all confidence in the Bible, first of all, that it comes to us from God. From purely a historical and archaeological point of view, the Bible is the most reliable ancient document in existence, bar none. It's more reliable than the writings of Julius Caesar or Homer's Iliad, more reliable than the writings of Plato or the Greek philosophers. Over the centuries, people have always tried to discredit the Bible, but time and time again, archaeology has proven the historical accuracy of Scripture. So don't be confused by those who speculate and obfuscate, who make up theories right and left, sell a lot of books, do TV specials, the facts are clearly on the side of the reliability of the Bible. And you can have utmost confidence in its historic nature. That what you are reading is what was written by the prophets and by the writers of the gospel and by Paul and the rest. Now, historical reliability doesn't prove the faith statements or teachings of Scripture. It doesn't prove that those are true. But the historical reliability of the Bible is a remarkable and even miraculous reality. But the Bible does claim to be more than just a history book. It also claims to be the very Word of God written. That is a faith statement, something that is not provable by archaeology. Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God. The Greek word he used means breathed out. That these words are God's words, given by God. Not that God dictated them from heaven and people just copied them down like a stenographer in a trance. No, that would be the claim of the Quran. Or that the Bible just dropped out of the sky fully formed, uh, like magic all put together. No, that would be the Book of Mormon. 
Now, God used a variety of real people, Moses, David, Isaiah, Matthew, John, Peter, and so forth, used their individual personalities, their experiences, coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit to produce what God wanted written, a divine library that expresses God's very nature. The Bible doesn't just contain words about God, as many progressive theologians would have it. No, it is the Word of God. God reveals Himself to people, and the Bible is the authoritative narrative of all those historical events. It was written by real people whom God used to record and say God's words for His people. This is God's way of communicating His nature, His will, His purpose. He does it through the lives and the stories and the wisdom of all these many messengers. Now, even though faithful Christians believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we don't worship the Bible. We certainly don't want to just disrespect the Bible. But if someone were to burn a Bible, as that happens often in uh, Muslim and communist countries, we wouldn't react the same as a zealous Muslim who, if somebody burned a copy of the Quran. We don't consider ink on paper to be sacred. No, as A.W. Tozer said, the Bible is not an end of its, in itself, but a means to bring people into an intimate and satisfying relationship and knowledge of God, that they might enter into Him, that they might delight in His presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself in the core and in the center of their hearts. The purpose of Scripture is to bring us into a deeper relationship with Christ. And so the Bible is not a book just to be revered, kept on a shelf, put on a pedestal. It is to be lived. It's, it's written word that bring us to the living word, Jesus Christ, and instructs us how we can live for Him. That's how life becomes blessed and fruitful and profitable, when we live our life based on the teachings of Scripture. Paul goes on to say that Scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be fully equipped. Teaching. By following God's Word, your life will start to move in the right direction, teaching you the right way to live. Rebuking. When you get off track, the Bible tells you so. It gives you warnings about wrong behavior. It's like that sign, that big red sign on the interstate that says, wrong way. The Bible gives clear moral guidelines to live by. It provides an ethical orientation for all people living in any culture, in any age, in any moral climate. Correcting. If you've gone off course, the Bible helps you find your way back. Through repentance, it liberates you from the bondage of sin, gives you the power for new living. And training, the Bible gives you encouragement to keep going in the right direction, to stay on course and to follow hard after God. How does it do all this? Because the Bible reveals Jesus Christ himself to you and to me. The living God revealed in print. No wonder God promises blessings when we follow his word. So how does following God's word actually bring blessing? Here's one very practical example that has to do with God's plan for marriage. Scripture is very clear that God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's it. That's the ideal. Scripture says, A man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's God's definition of marriage from Genesis through the New Testament. It's from the lips of Jesus and everybody else. Now we know that the real world is a bumpy place. Sin enters in, people make mistakes, humans act like humans. Divorce is an all too frequent reality, but divorce is not an unforgivable sin. 
and it is not a sin at all if there's been an aggrieved partner and there's been adultery, abuse, or abandonment, the things that kind of break the marriage covenant. But the fact that we don't always live up to God's high standards doesn't alter God's highest purposes for human relationships. And pursuing obedience in God's word in marriage actually has practical, real-life implications. I mentioned the African country of Malawi a little bit earlier. In the tribal culture of Malawi, their families are matrilineal. That means the children belong to the wife and not the husband. Husbands then often feel no or little responsibility to care for their biological children, and many of the men in the tribal culture practice polygamy. They move around the country following different kind of migrant work, and they move from one wife and one family to another. They may have three or four or five different wives, depending on how far they travel throughout the country. And the result of this is absolutely catastrophic to the people of Malawi. Because the husbands feel no responsibility, the children and the women are kept in abject poverty. The men lack any bonding to their families and therefore have no desire to provide for them. They have little work ethic. They become idle. They just keep moving from one relationship to another. This behavior was actually the number one reason for the spread of HIV-AIDS in Malawi and other parts of Africa. Their view of marriage has real cultural and, 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 and economic uh, consequences, and it's absolutely crippling countries like Malawi. Now, the Malawian Christians try to combat this with one simple biblical concept, that marriage is one man and one woman for life. If people in that country just followed that one simple biblical principle, it would revolutionize the culture. One man and one woman. Did you ever wonder why in the traditional marriage vows the pastor says, if anybody here has reason why these two should not be joined in holy matrimony, let them speak now? Well, it's because it was to combat polygamy back in Western Europe, but also now in Africa. So in Africa, whenever they have a ceremony, they always say that so that somebody can stand up and say, yeah, I got a reason. He's got three other wives in other villages. Now we know actually the same principle applies here in our country. Fatherless homes where the fathers have abandoned their biological children and moved from one relationship to another, it's the major, most serious cause of juvenile crime, drug abuse, dropping out of school, gang activity, you name it. So many of our social ills can be traced back to one simple thing, fathers who have abandoned their children. Now, there are plenty of super single dads and single moms who do a great job loving and caring for their kids, but a lot of men don't, and it is destructive. Building stable families where fathers embrace the care of their children, it is the backbone of every healthy society. This one principle from Scripture, one man, one woman coupled together, has been the backbone of civilization. And as a culture, we are quickly walking away from this now through social experiments to redefine the meaning of marriage. I believe we do so at great peril. Because once you get rid of the, definition, the biblical definition of marriage, literally anything goes. And next will become, mark my words, next will come an attempt to legitimize polygamy and other polyamorous relationships as an acceptable form of marriage and coupling. Mark my words, it is coming. You will start to see it on all the popular TV shows, positive characters who are in polygamous relationships. You can be sure of that. Now, that's just one biblical principle. We could talk about a hundred more. The main point is that we are to be like Joshua. Let's build our lives based on the foundation of God's Word. 
See that God's promises of blessing are true. Let's see God grow confidence in our hearts even when we've taken it on the chin, even when we have to start over like Joshua. Let's believe and act on God's word and God's promise. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do everything written in it, and then you will be prosperous and successful. Let's pray. God, I thank you for giving us this so complex and yet so simple book. I thank you, Lord, that at an early age, when I was a young Christian, you gave me a love and a hunger to know Scripture and to know it better. I pray, Lord, that for many of us, maybe when we first became believers, we had a real thirst for the knowledge of Scripture, Lord, and I, somewhere along the way, maybe we've seen that thirst dry up. Lord, I just pray that you would give each one of us a real hunger and desire to know Scripture, to live it, to love it, to learn it, so that we might just be infused with the truth of your word. Help us to do that, Lord, through small daily devotionals, through being in a Bible study, through an online app, or whatever it might be, Lord. There's so many different tools that we have now to bring your word into our lives. Help us to put aside all our excuses for neglecting your word, Lord. Help us to love that, to love your word because it leads us to you. And we want to know you more, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.